when I decided to write this book, The Authority Gap. I was giving a lecture about this at Oxford and I thought, well, I have to start by defining my terms. And guess what? First result that came up was from the Oxford Online Dictionary. And every single sentence that they used as illustration of different forms of the word authority began with the same pronoun. (laughs) He had the natural authority of one who was used to being obeyed. He hit the ball with authority. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Didn't Margaret Thatcher have the natural authority of one who was used to being obeyed? Doesn't Serena Williams hit the ball with authority? I wasn't even looking for this. I was just looking for a definition. But sometimes your subject just comes up and smacks you in the face. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. So today we're talking with a journalist who has written about a topic that we all need to pay a lot more attention to, and that's unconscious gender bias. Now, we've covered the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion a bit in previous episodes, but today's guest focuses more specifically on how that bias impacts how we treat men and women differently, especially when it comes to authority and power. Now, Clark, I'm super excited by our guest. She has many accolades to her name, but One of those is that she worked at the Times newspaper for about two decades and wrote a column that has huge followership, including me. So this is a lady that's got interesting insights on everything, and I'm super excited to hear them. Plus, um, who could not be excited to meet someone who thinks that if we had more women in power, the world would be a happier place for everyone? Well, my conscious bias in favor, I think the leadership advisors and search people, women are better listeners and they give better advice shown by such the success of our firm. I've got to say, though, I'm completely intimidated. We're supposed to be interviewing someone who does BBC NewsHour, Radio 4, and uh, a a journalist. So I'm petrified a little bit, I have to say, of of asking her the questions because she's going to turn them on us. But I'm super excited as well. Given what we do with boards, this couldn't be more timely a discussion. Our guest today is Marianne Seagart. Marianne is a journalist, author, non-executive director, and television broadcaster, as we said. She currently creates programs for BBC Radio 4, a visiting professor at King's College London. But importantly, she's the author of The Authority Gap, which explores the critical issue of why women are often taken less seriously than men. And that's one of the many topics we'd like to cover today. Marianne, welcome to Rita Finers. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Marianne, we'd like to talk a little bit about you. You, as Clark has said, have had an illustrious career in journalism. You've done a ton of things. You've been the assistant editor at The Times. You've written a column for The Independent. You hosted BBC's News Hours, among a long list of things. What's driven you all these years to be so successful in general? And talking about 
sort of the gender gap. Did you find being a woman either a hindrance or an advantage? What motivated me, I guess, was ambition. Now, that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because women are much more reluctant to admit to being ambitious than men. Mm. And in fact, uh, 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 someone who wrote a profile of me a couple of decades ago said that the word ambitious has been used so often before her name, the ambitious Marianne Seacart, that her children probably think it's her middle name. And I thought that was very funny because all my male colleagues were also very ambitious. I mean, to be successful in the very cutthroat world of national newspapers... You have to be ambitious, but it was never commented on for them and it was never used in any sort of derogatory way for them. And that's one of the things I write about in the book is the double standards that we apply to to women and to men. Why was I ambitious? I think because my parents, but particularly my father, really believed in me. And there was Mm. never any question that I wouldn't try to have a high achieving career. And interestingly, I interviewed a lot of very successful and powerful women for this book, you know, former presidents and prime ministers and Supreme Court justices and bishops and movie directors. And I asked them all about their childhood. And almost to a woman, they said, my father really believed in me. And I thought, how fascinating, because what that did was to give us license to compete and ideally to succeed in a world of men. It made us feel like we had as much right to be in the room as they did. So going on to, you know, what was it like in a male-dominated world? I realised very early on when I became an assistant editor of The Times, there was no woman more senior than me, so I had no role model at all. Mm -hmm. There was only one other woman at my level. So in the morning and afternoon meetings at which we planned what was going to go into the paper the next day, there were 22 of us, 20 men, two women. And if Bridget was away, I was the only woman. Marianne, the story that you say about your father resonates so much. So we had a conversation with Julia Gillard a few episodes ago, and she said one of the best things that we can do to reduce the the gender gap is to treat our children the same. No difference between a boy and a girl. Exactly. We also had Leslie Stahl from 60 Minutes on an episode, and we had this similar conversations. She talked about Connie Chung, and she were the first two on broadcast television. And she was just off the cuff and saying, well, of course we had to be strong-willed and aggressive and and stand our ground. I mean, we were the only two women. We had no choice. So we were aggressive and we stood our ground and we fought for the roles we wanted to produce and we fought for what we needed to do, but that's what it was. Were you held back, pushed back? Rupert Murdoch, who owns The Times, amongst many other big companies, used to have every two years a big shindig somewhere in America to which he would invite all his top executives And I got invited one year and we were allowed to bring our spouses. And it was five days of discussion and talks and panels and things like that. And over the five days, there were 50 speakers of whom 47 were men. There were only three female speakers, one of whom was his daughter. One was a woman from an outside news corporation. So there was only one independently promoted woman from the company who was allowed to speak from the stage. And my husband said to me, you're just in the wrong organization. You're you're never going to get to the top in this organization. And he was right. You know, I didn't become editor of The Times. And in fact, The Times hasn't yet had a female editor. Though The Sunday Times now has. So that's progress. And did you ever want to give up then? at any stage? Did you ever kind of want to put your hands up and say, I'll I'll go down a different route? 
Well, I sort of did, because in journalism, you can either be an editor or you can be a writer. And I toggled between the two. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, particularly after I had children, being a writer much more than an editor, being a columnist, which is, in some senses, you know, it's actually a lot more visible than being the editor. So many more people know the names of the columnists in the Times than know the name of the editor of the Times. So it's just going up, you know, a different tree trunk, really, I suppose. Mm. One of the other things we talked with Leslie about was those she interviewed and some of whom culturally may have been uncomfortable being interviewed by a woman versus a man 20 years ago. Who stands out in the people you have interviewed in various parts of your career? And how do they resonate with you? Who stays with you as one of the more interesting interviews? I think the most gripping one I did was of Kurt Waldheim, who was president of Austria. And he had had a sort of Nazi past. And this all came out while he was president. I don't know if you remember, it was in the late 80s. And he holed himself up in the presidential palace and refused to leave, basically refused to give any interviews, um, But I interviewed his ambassador on a TV programme I was doing at the time, presenting at the time called The World This Week. And I said afterwards, of course, absolutely love to interview the president. You know, is there any chance? And he said, well, I will ask. I didn't think any more about it. I didn't think there was the slightest chance. We then got the message that he was prepared to let me interview him. And so I was the very first journalist to interview Kurt Waldheim at the sort of height of his infamy. And... I don't know why he agreed to let me do it, but I suspect it's because he knew I had Austrian roots and that my great-grandfather had been an advisor to mm-hmm. the Emperor Franz Josef, and he probably thought, well, I'll be on quite safe ground, and she's a young woman, she can't be much of a threat. <laughs> so in comes the president, uh, I'm absolutely terrified, and uh, the sound goes down. And so the sound engineer says, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to fix this. So I have to make small talk with this um, sort of beleaguered president, which is not what I had in mind. So I said to him, oh, now my great-grandfather worked in this palace, you know, at the turn of the last century. He said, very interesting, tell me more. And then he said, so when did your family leave Austria? I should say, by the way, that Sieghart is a very, very Aryan name. And my great-grandfather changed it from Singer, which was a Jewish name, when he converted So Valtheim obviously assumed I was Aryan. (laughs) And I said, my family left in 1939. And you could almost see the blood drain from his face. Wow. As he realised that he was not being interviewed necessarily by an ally. (laughs) And uh, I finally, during the interview, I was worried he was going to pull out, but then then the sound started working and he didn't have a chance to. Um, I did manage to get him to admit eventually, after a lot of questioning, that he had knowingly sent some British soldiers to their death at the hands of the Gestapo. So that created quite a stir here. Whoa, whoa. You're a good interviewer. I'm getting more nervous about the next 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) How do you get someone like that? How how do you unlock someone like that? And how do you prepare for that? Talk us through, I mean, you said you were terrified. How did you prepare for it? And you know, was it a case of, you said you kind of, after many questions, is it a case of kind of just tiring them until they unlock? Uh, well, I prepared by doing a lot of research and a lot of reading. So I was persistent, but incredibly polite and not overtly aggressive. Yeah. But I just kept asking the same question again and again and again with different phraseology until eventually he said, yeah, that is about the correct picture. 
i.e. <laughs> because I sort of cornered him by saying, well, you knew they were going to the Gestapo, you knew the Gestapo killed their prisoners, you know, until eventually there was sort of no way out. But I think I did it in a very polite way. Okay. And maybe that sort of unnerved him and, and he let his guard down a bit. Astounding story. So, Marianne, in each episode, uh, we ask our guests what their redefiner moment was. Can you tell us what maybe the one or two pivotal moments were in your life or in, in your career that have really sort of shaped you to be who you are today? When I decided to write this book, The Authority Gap, I had been tentatively approached by All Souls College Oxford to ask if I'd like to apply for a visiting fellowship there. And in order to apply, you have to provide a research proposal. So what you want to do when you're there. And I wanted to write a book. And because I'd spent my life as a political columnist, I thought, well, it probably better be a book about British politics. But this idea about women and authority had been lurking in the back of my mind for quite a long time. And I couldn't decide which proposal to put forward. And I happened to bump into a fellow of all souls at a party who I knew. And I put forward this idea and he said, that's the one that's what you should do. Wow. And I said, are you sure? Because aren't they, you know, a little bit old fashioned still? No, no, no. He said, they will absolutely love it. And as soon as he said it, I knew it was also the one I really wanted to do. So my head had been saying, write a book about British politics. That's your expertise. But my heart was saying, write this book about women and authority. It's so much more important. It is so important. And how sad is that, that at this moment in life, it's still so important, but it is. And you've shown a spotlight on this incredible issue that has created an, an incredible following. Just for our listeners to understand, it's a book examining why women struggle to be taken seriously in professional life, unconscious bias, direct bias. Can you tell us more? What did you uncover for those who have not read the book or people in other parts of the world? We're quite curious. So the authority gap is the extent to which we're still much more prepared to accord authority to men than to women. And when I say authority, I mean both in terms of expertise and in terms of power and leadership. And just as an anecdote, I was giving a lecture about this at Oxford when I was writing the book and I thought, well, I have to start by defining my terms. So I literally just Googled authority and definition. First result that came up was from the Oxford Online Dictionary. And guess what? Every single sentence that they used as illustration of different forms of the word authority began with the same pronoun. <laughs> He had the natural authority of one who was used to being obeyed. He hit the ball with authority. He was an authority on the stock market. Hmm. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Didn't Margaret Thatcher have the natural authority of one who was used to being obeyed? Doesn't Serena Williams hit the ball with authority? Isn't Helena Morrissey, certainly here in London, an authority on the stock market? I wasn't even looking for this. I was just looking for a definition. But sometimes your subject just comes up and smacks you in the face. <laughs> and what happens as a result of the authority gap is all sorts of behaviour which is incredibly frustrating for women, such as being underestimated, undermined, interrupted or talked over, um, having their expertise disproportionately challenged, finding it much harder to influence a group and having their power or authority resisted. And there are also academic studies to prove that this is the case. So, for instance, even at the very highest levels, there was a fascinating study done of the US Supreme Court very recently, just four years ago. And at that stage, women made up a third of all justices, but they suffered two thirds of all interruptions. In other words, they were four times more likely to be interrupted than their male colleagues, 96% of the time by men. Wow. 
And another study was done of influence. And I, I found this one fascinating because I'm sure every woman listening to this has had the experience of making a point at a meeting. No one takes a blind bit of notice. 10 minutes later, a man makes exactly the same point and it's treated like the second coming. Okay, this often happens. And we tend to beat ourselves up about it and we think, oh, maybe I wasn't confident enough or maybe I wasn't articulate or eloquent enough. No, you were probably just too female. And the study that proves this brought together a mixed gender group of people, men and women together, ostensibly to decide a child custody case. And they deliberately chose this subject because it's actually quite female stereotyped. And they gave the group all sorts of information about the family concerned. But they gave a couple of individual members a piece of information that the rest of the group didn't have. And when that information was introduced by a man, it was six times more likely to be used by the group in its deliberations than when it was introduced by a woman. Hmm. Six times more. So that's how much harder women often find it to influence the room. Wow. So there's all this academic evidence for the existence of the authority gap. But there's another really good way of proving that it exists. And that's to talk to people who've transitioned to the opposite gender. And so I tell the story in my book of two Stanford science professors who happened to transition in opposite directions at the same time. And they used to meet up and have lunch and compare notes about it. And Ben Barris, who was a neuroscientist, once he started living as a man, he said, I've had the thought a million times, I'm just taken more seriously now. He said, my work is taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he put it, is taken more seriously now that people see me as a man. And someone in the back of one of his seminars who didn't know his history was overheard saying, oh, Ben Barres gave a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's, i.e. his own work. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. I know. Meanwhile, Joan Roughgarden, who is an evolutionary biologist, was the one who transitioned in the other direction. And she told me that when she was living as a man, she just felt like she was on this conveyor belt to success. She kept being promoted and her pay kept going up and she was invited to sit on the university senate committee and her work was taken very seriously. Once she started living as a woman, all that changed. And she started coming up against all these instances of authority gap behaviour that I write about, such as being underestimated, challenged, talked over, no one listening to her until a man confirmed what she said, all that sort of thing. And she said, to start with, I thought, well, if I'm going to live as a woman, I'm darn well going to be discriminated against like a woman. And then she said, well, the thrill of that has worn off, I can tell you. And she said what, what most struck her was how people would personally attack her and say things like, you clearly haven't read the literature. She said that never happened to me when I was living as a man. And her conclusion was that men are assumed to be competent until they prove otherwise. Women are assumed to be incompetent until they prove otherwise. Unbelievable, really, at one level, but totally fits into what you've said. But just think of all the struggles they've gone through to be the person they wanted to be. And then, yeah, you know, yeah. amazing. Where does that unconscious bias come from? Why do we have it? Well, I mean, it comes from millennia of patriarchy, of being mm. told that men are superior to women and, uh, you know, that men should basically be in charge. But even more recently than that, it comes from the world around us. We still see many, many more men in authority than women. You know, in the US Congress, there are three times as many men as women. In the yeah. UK Parliament, there are still twice as many. Uh, 
in the FTSE 100, that's the top 100 companies in, in the UK, 94 of them are run by men and only six by women. And so it's just much more natural to associate male with authority than female yeah. with authority. And most of us have probably grown up in a family in which our father worked more, almost certainly earned more, possibly had more authority at home than our mother. So that just gets ingrained in our brains, I'm afraid, and it's quite hard to get rid of. So we have so many successful listeners that, of course, are women. Where are their solutions? I mean, we're in the business of assessing and judging leaders and recruiting women to run companies, to be on boards, to run businesses with great success. But still, there are issues to overcome. Where are the solutions? What's your advice? If you're a younger woman listening to this podcast, what do we tell her? Well, actually, my main message is that it's not women we need to fix. It's the way that all of us perceive and react to and interact with women that we need to fix. So it's not really for the woman to change the way she is. It's for the rest of us to change how we behave towards women. That said, I talked earlier about the double standards that we apply to women and to men, and particularly to confident women. Hmm. And so if women aren't confident enough, we tend to disrespect them and they're not taken as seriously but it's not as simple as saying, well, you should just lean in because if women are confident enough, we often dislike them. And we start to use adjectives like abrasive or strident or aggressive or bossy, overbearing. You've heard all these. And these are adjectives that are very rarely used of men. So, you know, if, if we say that a male CEO is tough, we admire him. If a female CEO is tough, she's a bitch. Yeah. There is a way through for women, if you're talking about younger women who, who want to get on in their careers, and that is to overlay a huge level of warmth onto their personality. And almost all the women whom I interviewed for the book said this, that what they have to exert is warm authority. And this is also backed up by the academic evidence. Mm. Because we tend to elicit this sort of sense of hostility if we do act confidently and assertively and competently, which we need to do in order to be leaders, we have to be incredibly warm as well. Um, so we smile more, we use humour to leaven situations, we have to read the room very carefully, have lots of emotional intelligence, be terribly careful not to dent any men's egos. And that's the only way we can get through being confident and agentic enough without being disliked. But it's quite exhausting and it's a burden that, men don't have to bear. Right. One of the lessons which we've talked about, Nanaz and I have before, so the lessons here about great organizations, particularly those led by men or businesses led by men, is we have to learn to lead differently, better, more effectively. Mm. We've just come through a CEO succession in my succession in our company. And I was talking to one of the leading women and we talked about it in the aftermath of the decisions and she taught me a great lesson very recently. We all have to keep learning. She said, you need to ask the women what they want and when. Do not make any assumptions. You don't perhaps ask the men because you've made an assumption. You never asked me directly. And I don't know what your reflection on that is, but it was, for me, the lessons are for the men to understand differences, to accelerate women or equalize women for that matter. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a really good question. And she gave you a very good answer there. Um, so often, for instance, when a woman has a baby, we assume that she's not going to be as committed to her career or that she's going to want to ease off. 
just ask her because she may be just as committed to her career. We don't make that assumption for fathers. But I also think it's very important if companies want to get rid of this sort of authority gap behaviour that I've been talking about, I think it's great to get female employees into a room together without any men, guarantee them anonymity, and then Mm. ask them to tell their stories about the way that they've been treated by their bosses, by their colleagues, sometimes even by their subordinates. Compile their stories and take them to senior management, who are likely as not to be predominantly male, and then say, this is the culture we've got in this organisation at the moment. Surely we want it to change. And then if that change starts to come from the top and people at the top say, we're going to have zero tolerance of this. If men start interrupting women in meetings, they're going to be punished for it. It's going to be noted. It's going to be held against them. You know, I think that's probably the only way in which we can start to change this sort of culture. I hear what you say, Marianne, and that, you know, to change it, it's not about changing women. It's about changing all of our perceptions and sort of how we react and how we behave. I completely hear you. But does the problem... Or did you find in your research that the problem becomes less pronounced as women get older simply because they gain more experience, more skills? I mean, I I find that I'm much more confident, much more assertive, and actually not afraid to speak over any man now that I'm 44 versus kind of 20 years ago. Does age help the situation at all? I think in most respects it does help. Um, Because obviously seniority helps, though, as I said, even with Supreme Court justices, (laughs) they still come up against it a bit. But most of the women whom I interviewed said it got better as they got older. And also, as you said, Nanaz, we get braver and it's easier for us to call it out as we get older. So, you know, if you get interrupted in a meeting, I can say, hang on, I was really interested in what Nanaz was saying there. Or if you make a point and no one takes any notice and a man repeats it later, I can say, oh, I'm so glad you agreed with what Nana said earlier. (laughs) You know, I do think we get braver. Yep, absolutely. We'll be right back with our conversation with Marianne Seekhart after a quick break with Corey Schneider, an executive director with Russell Reynolds Associates in Los Angeles. Corey discusses real strategies to curb resignations through a more equitable approach to talent. Why is everybody leaving? If you're one of those leaders asking the question during the great resignation, you're not alone. According to a recent survey we conducted, 64% of global executives say that employee turnover in their organizations has increased over the past 12 months, with no sign of stopping. The turnover picture is even worse for women, and especially women of color, many of whom are leaving their jobs in search of better pay, benefits, culture, or more job flexibility to balance childcare or family care needs. So what can you do to retain women and diverse talent? You can build and activate an equitable retention program and curb the great resignation in your organization through using data collected through our proprietary talent management equity model and survey that identifies specific leadership and organizational actions. The most significant actions with the greatest impact are rooted in inclusive leadership, remaining curious and seeking to understand cultural differences, as well as taking a genuine stand on diversity, equity, and inclusion issues are critical enablers of retention. Leaders can conduct listening tours within their organization to better understand employees' unique backgrounds, identities, concerns, and needs. It is critical to listen and acknowledge what is going on in the outside world that make an impact on your employees' engagement and well-being. And one of the most powerful statements to support equity is to walk the talk 
by sharing how your organization is working to attract and hire underrepresented talent at every level of the organization. While you can't stop the great resignation from affecting your organization, you can work to create more inclusive and equitable cultures and experiences where talent will want to work. To learn more about how you can create an equitable approach to talent, go to russellreynolds.com slash insights. And now back to our conversation with Marianne. Let's talk a bit about your board roles. Age 45, you decided to leave the Times and took on a number of board roles, which you've had for the Guardian Media, for Pantheon International, New Europe, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think is the board's role when it comes to overcoming this authority gap? Uh, well, the first thing the board must do is make sure that it's diverse enough itself. Mm-hmm. When I became chair of um, the Social Market Foundation think tank, I inherited a board that was entirely male. Wow. <laughs> which seems extraordinary now, doesn't it? Wow. And yeah, within two or three years, I got it up to 50-50 and 20% black and ethnic minority. You know, so I, I made it a diverse board and I think it became a much better board as a result. So you have to lead by example. I think boards then need to ask for data. Data, very important in this respect. So first of mm. all, where women have got to in the organisation What's the main reason for their leaving? It's important to do exit interviews. And if it's the culture of the organisation, then that's a real problem. I think it's great for the board to see that sort of information and then hold the executive to account for what they're going to do about it. And make sure also that all the hiring practices, promotional practices and employment practices are as female friendly as possible. Using blind CVs helps a lot. Uh, there was a study done of yeah. um, applications for time on the Hubble Space Telescope. And of course, all scientists want to have a chance to use the Hubble Space Telescope. And um, before the applications were anonymized, men were given more time than women, supposedly based on scientific merit of their proposals. Once they anonymized them, women got more time than men. Love it. And you've somehow got to get that bias out of selection, hiring and promotion decisions. It's difficult, but it's possible. You'll be happy to know that because of the ways specifications are written, references are taken, interviews are conducted. In the last few years, we've actually redone our search processes to call it equitable search, which is the founding moment. It's like having algorithms designed by men to search for results out of data if it's designed with a certain mindset. And so when we even looked at ourselves to say, look at this, look how it's asked, look how it's referenced, we have to be very careful. And we've created a lot of change, which thank goodness. That's fantastic because, you know, there's research showing, for instance, that if you have any one woman on a short list, her chances of being selected are vanishingly small mm. because what it's subliminally telling you is that men are, say, you know, if there are four men and one woman are four times better at this sort of job than women are. And if you only have one woman on a selection panel, again, they're much less likely to choose a female candidate because the men will think we don't have to worry about diversity. She's taking care of that. And the women will think mm. if I... If I suggest the female candidate, they'll think I'm being nepotistic. So there are all sorts of things. I'm sure you know about this, but there are all sorts of things you could do in your practices to try to get rid of this sort of bias. I think it's hugely effective changing the panel, hugely effective looking at the long list, uh, long before you to the short list and, and the progress. I was actually a founding member following Helen Morrissey at her request for the 30% Club. And look how much progress was made both in the UK and the US in a relatively short period of time when you, you know, create the awareness and then drive to fairness, drive to it. 
don't assume anything. Enormous results, I must say. If we step back a little bit, you have had the perch as a columnist and in arranging different programs, have seen this world evolve. Brexit, the role of the EU, China and the US, the stridency of the world today. What do you look at as some of the most powerful forces that, that we're going to have to deal with? We have a lot of board members and, and C-suite executives listening to this podcast. Gen Zs and millennials, they want to work for companies that have a purpose. They want to buy goods that are produced sustainably and not by slave labor uh, and not with too many air miles. You know, they, their values are absolutely imbued in what they buy and where they want to work and what they want to do. So if you've got global threats and insecurity as the worst since the 60s, I think you've probably got values that are the best since the 60s. But this is something that boards really need to think about because they don't tend to have many Gen Zs or millennials on them. But a lot of their current customers and even more of their future customers are going to have those sorts of values and their employees. So, Marianne, we'd like to end each podcast with some rapid fire questions. So this is where we're going to give you a series of five questions and we ask you to respond as quickly as you can. Are you ready? Okay. The first one, at what age did you take your first big risk and what was it? Oh, I remember aged about three, my brother tying a piece of paper to my back with some cotton threads, telling me it was a parachute and that I was safe to jump from the rather high playroom table. And I believed him and smashed my face on the floor. <laughs> oh, you would have fit in very well in our family as well, I could tell. Um, if you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? Oh, goodness. I think psychology. I think I'm a cod psychologist at heart. And if I were to go back to university, that's what I would like to read now. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. My father used to say, and I think this is pretty good advice, never do anything irreversible. So don't get a tattoo. Don't um, drive with someone drunk and, you know, end up going through the windscreen. Don't have a baby that you don't want. Yeah. This was all pretty good advice, except by the age of 40, I realized that I'd actually spent more of my life regretting not having a tattoo than having one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marion Seagert with a tat. We like that concept. Okay. Well, I'd love, you know, my father um, said to me, always tell the truth. You never have to remember what to say. And it was a really, really, you just prompted that memory of mine. Oh, that's clever. I like that. Next question, which leadership quality do you admire most? Listening. Hmm. I find that so many leaders are much more on transmit than receive. And I think it's so important hmm. to be on receive, actually to listen and to have an open enough mind to be able to change your mind if what you hear doesn't accord with your own preconceptions. And the last one, Marianne, what's your favorite self-care ritual? Ooh, I think going for a lovely walk in the countryside, there's something about greenery and the open air and wind on my face and sometimes occasionally in the UK, even sun on my face that makes me feel better. Fantastic. Thank you. A lot of learnings here today. And I think for whether it's about listening versus transmitting or the environment in which one raises a family and as a father myself, thinking about what you talked about and Anas in your house as well. And thinking about the environment from the very beginning, about male versus female. But ultimately, this decision to be a writer and an editor really was affected by how you wanted to live your life. 
and lo and behold, you end up in front of Kurt Waldheim or many other people. But the next thing after confidence was persistence, that this concept of asking the question again and again slightly differently got you to answers that were intriguing that created your career as a journalist. And look where the world is today. So you were a trailblazer even in figuring out how to keep it all together. Your book, The Authority Gap, and so frustrating, whether it's the U.S. Supreme Court or the U.K. Parliament, it's astounding we do have so much work yet to do. And whether we think we've talked about it for a long time, I'm 59, I've been in this career 30 years, we've probably, hopefully, made more progress in the past five or seven than we did in the previous 20 or 30, but we've got so much farther to go. And the concept of women having to show agency and overlay a higher level of warmth to their agency is frustrating, but perhaps true. My lesson learned in our discussion about make no assumptions, ask the questions, because we, speaking for the men in this podcast, have to help create the change and create the environment. And as we move to boards, just remember it's the panelists, it's the questions, it's the jury, it's not just the lists. And lastly, that if you look in the last 30 or 40 years, we're at a moment in history that the global threats are significant. But the value base of the future is perhaps the strongest it's ever been. And so we leave this with work to do, but a sense of hope and trust and belief in what this next few generations can bring because of role models like you. Being braver, more confident, help those succeed. So thank you for being here today. It was a fascinating discussion. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it too. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com, find us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Marianne. We'll be taking a short break, so there will not be a new episode on July 6th, but do not worry. We'll be back on July 13th to sit down with Kevin Lobo, CEO of medtech company Stryker. See you soon.